great to see you today. Um, man, just watching those baptisms a second ago, if you're a daddy with, with young kids, don't you hope for that day when, when God grabs the heart of your little boys or little girls? Man, I look forward to that. Um, well, I have been ready to go for the book of Ephesians for a while. I'm excited. I don't know if you're excited this morning, but I'm ready to go. And so the book of Ephesians is where we're going to be. If you want to flip there, you can mark it. And then also, why don't you put a thumb in and mark um, the book of Acts. You can start in Acts chapter 9. We're going to have to go to both of those places. And, and here's the goal for today is it's just to throw out an introduction just to make sure we're all up to speed as we start reading down through and studying the book of Ephesians that um, we're all up to date, ready to kind of move forward in this thing. So the book of Ephesians is where we're going to be. Okay, and, and let, me, let me start by just saying this, that there's a, a reason why we're choosing to preach primarily through books of the Bible. And so we're going to be here for the next few months. So settle in, right? And so, so this is where we're hanging out for a while. And the reason we want to do that is this is the other option. I could come in each week and we could say, okay, we're going to go Revelation 3 this week, Mark 10 this week, and then something else the next week. And, and here's the problem with that. And I'm not saying it's bad. I think there's a place for it. But here's what I think it can do for us is I think it can make the Bible seem really disjointed. It can make it seem really random. So if all I'm doing is grabbing random passages um, and, and never bringing the, the argument of a book and kind of a, a longer passage of scripture here, it can just make and, and kind of this ingrained thing that we already kind of feel when we read the Bible of it, of it being random, it just kind of accentuates that and, and pounds that in a little further. So we want to preach through books of the Bible where you can see that it's not random. Philippians 4.13, just because you have it in your locker doesn't mean you're going to score every touchdown. It's not, it doesn't mean that you can do every touchdown thing through Christ Jesus. It means that regardless if you get the touchdown or not, you've got contentment. That's what it means there. And so we want to make sure that we are promoting that this is a beautifully bound book. It's united by the glory of God. It all speaks about Jesus. So we want you to see that throughout a book. Right? Okay, so we're preaching through books of the Bible. So we're starting in Ephesians. We're going to get to through two verses a day. It's going to take us a while, right? So two verses, that's how far we're going. Really just one, to be honest with you. And so, so one verse is, is, yeah, it's going to be long. Okay, so here we go. Four, four kind of preliminary thoughts as we kind of move into this book on why, why this one. Why do we choose the book of Ephesians to kind of get us, you know, ramped up for, um, this is really the spring kind of through a lot of the summer. So, so why the book of Ephesians? Let me give you four reasons. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. I think they'll be up on the screen for you. Number one. Ephesians, pound for pound, is the most influential letter ever written. Now, isn't this crazy to think that a simple letter, six chapters long, a letter, can change the course of history? Isn't that a wild thing to think about? That history was shaped by a six-chapter letter. So pound for pound, probably the most influential letter ever written. Um, New Testament scholar Klein Snodgrass, he said this about the book of Ephesians. Pound for pound... This is, this is where it's coming from, the most significant document ever. Okay, Samuel Taylor Coolridge, another New Testament scholar, did a most, or the divinest composition of man. Like he, he loves the book of Ephesians here. John Calvin, it was his favorite letter. Raymond Brown, a, a preacher um, a couple centuries ago, he says this about it. Only Romans could match Ephesians as a candidate for exercising the most influence on Christian thought and spirituality. Only Romans can rival it. And he's saying this, that pound for pound, Ephesians probably outdoes even Romans. Uh, and, it, and it's for this reason. I, okay, when you think of Romans, you've got 16 chapters, 433 verses. It's a pretty long book when you're thinking Romans. Ephesians is crammed into six chapters, 154 verses. So if you think of the, the course of Romans in history, it would be like this semi that just bulldozes everything. That's Romans. 
big, bulky semi. When you think of, of Ephesians, you might think of a Porsche. that is just kind of this head-turning cover that the gospel is wrapped in. So Ephesians, pound for pound, probably the most influential letter ever written. And, and here's what I love about just reading through passages like Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, is all of us have spiritual markers in our life, right? Like we have these moments in life where after we read this passage, life was forever changed. Like these defining moments for us a lot of times are linked to scriptures, right? I remember like in between my freshman and sophomore year of college, Philippians 1, 20 and 21 was one of those scriptures that I, I link a major turn in life to those two verses, Right? And so we've got these, these kind of these markers. I remember a little bit later in college when I thought lust was just something every guy does, who cares? We're all in it. Until I read Ephesians 5 3. And every guy look at me in here. It's not okay. It's not okay. Just because your neighbor, it's not okay. Just because all, it's not okay. Not even a hint, Paul's gonna say. And so all, like, there's all these life-changing little um, defining moments that are attached to these scriptures. Now, I hope that this will be co- come true for you as we read through and study the book of Ephesians, that maybe one or two life-changing moments, these defining moments, might be wrapped into a couple of these passages that we're going to get to run through in this book. So pound for pound, probably the most influential letter written. Number two, second reasons why, why the book of Ephesians. It counteracts the superficial knowledge of the gospel. We talk about this all the time. That we live in the Bible Belt. Everybody knows the gospel, but nobody knows the gospel, right? And so we're, we've, we live in an area that's inoculated by it. We've all been, been given just enough of a dead virus to make us immune to the real thing, to the living thing. And here's what the book of Ephesians is about to do for all of us in here. It's going to hook up this little IV and start pumping a biblical gospel into your veins. Right? You're going to start reading through the first three chapters, and here's what you're going to get. You're going to get the gospel. That's what it's going to be about. For three chapters, Paul's going to do nothing but talk about the gospel. This is how rich you are in Christ. You read chapter 2, the first ten verses, probably the most concise and powerful picture of the gospel in all of scriptures in ten verses. If you want to memorize ten verses in scripture, that would not be a bad candidate. This, this beautiful imagery of God making dead people alive. Three chapters of a biblical gospel. And then the implications for that. So he is about to start pumping a biblical gospel out for all of us to sit under, to think about, to, to figure out the implications of. You're about to get a good biblical gospel that's going to raise us up out of the superficial age that we live in. Okay, number three. Third reason. It's one of the most applicable letters to our church specifically. Um, okay, so, so this is one of those interesting facts about the book of Ephesians, is it's not written to correct any major flaw or any major doctrinal error in the church. Like, if you go to the book of 1 Corinthians, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see a church that I don't even know how they're existing, right? I mean, you've got um, the celebrity preacher thing, I followed this guy, I'm podcasting this one, who you like, who do you, like, you've got that whole thing working itself out. You've got them getting drunk at communion, like communion turned into the cocktail party, Right? I mean, you've got, is that not crazy? You're getting drunk at communion. Come on. Okay, so he, he unfolds 11 problems in the book of 1 Corinthians. Addresses 11 different problems. You've got sons marrying stepmoms. I mean, you've just got crazy stuff happening in the book. But Ephesians is not like that. In the book of Galatians, you've got uh, Paul where he is addressing this fact that, that the people of Galatia, this church, has distorted the gospel. It has become Jesus plus something. So he's coming in and saying, listen, it's Jesus plus nothing. He's it. He's plenty. 
But the book of Ephesians is not meant to correct any doctrinal errors. At the end of the, at the, end of the book, and I think it's 622, um, it's going to say, Paul's going to say, I'm sending tickets to you. And here's what he's going to say about this guy. I'm sending him to you to encourage you. So the book of Ephesians provides this great encouragement to the life of a believer. Um, I, I read this article a couple of years ago in the L.A. Times. And, and here's kind of what it was unfolding. It was reporting on this couple. I think they were in their 50s who had died in their house. They did an autopsy on the couple. Uh, they found their bodies literally decomposed after several weeks in this house. They, they, they do the autopsy. And here's what they find out about this couple. They died of malnutrition. Now, now here, here's the, the second part of that story. Is they start searching through the house, kind of combing through the house. And this is what they find. In one of the closets nearby where they died, $40,000 were rolled up in these little paper sacks. Forty grand in the closet and you die of malnutrition. Now, I think there's a metaphor here for the spirituality of a lot of us. That, that on the outside, we look plump and fine and well-rounded, but on the inside, we're really malnourished. Spiritually, we're really anemic. Spiritually, we need the feast of the gospel. And, and here's what the book of Ephesians does. It's going to come along and say this, that you have got an inexhaustible amount of riches in the closet. You've got riches within reach. You don't have to stay malnourished. You don't have to stay there. You can grab the riches of the gospel in Christ. It's going to present the gospel, and I love this, in in Ephesians 3, 8, and 9. It's going to say that it's the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what the gospel is. It's inexhaustible riches. It is like you putting a checkbook in your back pocket. You can write checks for the rest of your life and never run out of money. That's the gospel. It is the forever feast. That you can eat on forever in Christ. That's the gospel. So if we're malnourished, if we're discouraged, the gospel is going to come beside us and it's going to give us some good gospel-centered encouragement. Okay, number four. It bridges beliefs and behavior. And we'll kind of use this to kind of maybe give a general structure of the book of Ephesians. So it it bridges beliefs over here and and then our behavior, our our doctrine, what we believe and our duty, how we live. It's going to balance this right learning and then right living. Okay, so so here's the the overall structure of the book feels like this. Your first three chapters are going to be nothing but doctrine. Nothing but this is what we believe. This is, this is, as a Christian, these are the basic beliefs. This is the gospel. This is belief. Okay, I, I'll never forget going to seminary. I, I'm probably uh, 22 at the time, something like that, when I start. And I'm sitting in a New Testament class. And I remember being so frustrated. Here's what I was frustrated about. I almost laugh at myself now. Um, I, 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 looking back, here's what, here was the angst inside of me. I'm thinking this. We're studying Romans chapter 9. And I'm a student pastor. And I just started at that. I don't know if I need to be studying Romans chapter 9. I think I need to be learning how to do student ministry. I, and I remember having this thought. And I'm actually paying for this. I mean, what am I thinking, right? And, and so, um, now, now here, I think there's this natural reflex in all of our hearts to bend in that direction. To just say this. Tell me what to do. I, okay, so X, Y, and Z, then I can be a good husband. Okay, fine. So X, Y, and Z, then I can be a good, fine. 
So X, Y, and Z, and then I can be good at what... Okay, and Ephesians is going to come along and say, listen, it is not behavior first. It is belief first. If you want lasting change in your life, it's got to be a change of heart. It's got to be a change of what you value. It's got to be a change in your belief. That's where it starts. And then when you change belief, all these implications start to flow from that. But until these things here change, you're not going to last long, right? Belief, then behavior. Doctrine, then duty. Right learning, then right living. That's, that's the flow. Oh, okay, then, so chapter 1 through 3, it's going to lay that down hard. This is the beliefs of a Christian. Chapter 4 through 6, is it's going to be the, the duty part of this, the, the behavior part of it. This is now how Christians live. Okay, so this is how it plays out. Chapters 1 through 3, everything is in the passive tense. So here's what it means. Everything is done to us, for us. So we are, you get these words like redemption, like adoption. None of those things are things that we do, by the way. All of those things are done to us. Everything in the first three chapters, there's one command in chapters 1 through 3. One. It's Romans, or, uh, Ephesians 2.11. And the command is to remember. That's your one. Remember what Christ has done. Everything else, is the verbs are what Christ has done for you and to you. 1 through 3. Then you get to chapter 4 through 6. There's over 40 imperatives. You do this. Because of what Christ has done, now you go after this. Now everybody, in, 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 like, I think this is one of our plagues, that when we think Christianity, we think do first. We think D.O. When, when maybe a better way to think Christianity first is done. What Christ has done, now we do out of that. So, so... Everything's passive, one through three. Now everything turns into imperatives. Now you go do this. Look at Ephesians 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 1. Look at that passage there. He, he's going to start with this. You need to make sure your life is in alignment with the gospel. That you're living in such a way that it's worthy of the calling. All these imperatives flow from that. Okay, now let me put this one plug in and then we'll, we'll keep moving. Our book of the month for March is called Christian Beliefs. 20 basics that every Christian should know. That's the book. It's on sale for $10 out here. And here's the thing. Every daddy in here, I want you to look at me. You need to be a good theologian. Every daddy in here. Now, I want you just to pick up the nuance there. I'm not saying you need to be a theologian because you already are one. It's just the matter of if you're a good one or not. The most important thought you will ever think in your heart or ever think in your mind is the one immediately following the word God. That thought right then, whatever came to your mind right then is the most important thought you will ever think. That is a theological question. When you think God, this is what follows. And this is one of our plagues in here is when we think God, it is a pale picture. When the biblical picture is big and beautiful and massive, worth all of your life. Okay, so Christian beliefs on sale, $20. I think it will, will prompt you in the way of becoming a good theologian. Here's some basics that we need to walk in, that we need to learn, that we need to disciple our wives and that we need to make sure our family knows. So that book's on sale. And listen, we don't make a buck off that. That is for you to have good resources in your home. Okay, so it unites this belief and, and our behavior. Okay, now let's take a, jump into the plane. We're going to take a quick overview of the book. So, so make sure you're in Ephesians 1, 1. Here we go. Quick overview. Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. 
First 14 verses. Here's your key word, in Christ. It it appears 11 times in the first 14 verses. And, And so he's bringing in a real heavy way that your identity is now in Christ. Look at verse 10 there. This is kind of the theme of the book, that this is what God is about doing. God is about uniting all things to Christ. This is what God is up to. This is the first three chapters is unfolding, God uniting all things to Jesus. That's what God does. He is a missionary God, redemption, adoption, chosen. All these words are coming out of Ephesians chapter 1, first 14 verses. This is what God is up to. Our identity is in Christ, the inexhaustible riches of Christ made available through Jesus. Okay, that's the first 14 um, verses. Look at 15 through 22. This is a pastoral prayer. And as you read that prayer, here's what's, I think, convicting about it. As you read that prayer, how different it sounds than the way we pray. Right? And, and so almost all of our prayers are, um, do something physical. When Paul is praying for his people that God would enlighten their eyes, verse 18, that, that, that their, their heart would become enlightened, that it would see all that they have in Christ. Okay, look at chapter 2, verse 1. Um, God, he's about to unfold who we are outside of Christ. And then verse 4, but God makes alive. Okay, the gospel is not making bad people good. The gospel is making spiritually dead people alive. That's the gospel. He unfolds it in in chapter 2. Then the rest of chapter 2, 11 through 22, he's about to unpack unity and and this this idea that God has made strangers, people far far off from God, people alienated from God, people that are strangers. He has brought them near through the blood of Christ. So, So here's the beautiful thing when you think of unity. That, that right now, across the world, there are Chinese people worshiping Jesus. There are Americans, Europeans, Canadians, any sort of, you get the picture, all of us, right? Okay, so all around the world, we are worshiping Jesus. You know why we can do that? Because Jesus, all of us, has brought us from strangers and he has made us sons. So in turn, we become brothers and sisters. Chapter 2 drives a stake in racial prejudice, in pride and partiality and favoritism. And it brings us all on a level playing field before the cross. Okay, chapter 3. You get Paul unfolding that he is a prisoner of the Lord. He, He has got this gospel obligation to preach the gospel. Look at verse 8 there. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given me. To preach the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. To preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That's what he's about doing. Verse 14 through 21, you've got another pastoral prayer. And I'm really looking forward when we get to this section. Here's what you're going to hear. That God loves you. If you are in Christ, that the love of God rests on you. It's not based on your appearance, on your physical beauty. It's not based on your social status. It's not based on, I mean, we could go down the list here. If you're in Christ, his love rests on you. And Paul's praying that these people would know that. That they would not base their love and how God looks at them off of appearance, off of money, off possessions, but off of being in Christ. That he loves them. Okay, then chapter 4. One imperative in all that. And that is, remember what Christ has done. 2.11. Okay, then you get to chapter 4, all the imperatives start to come. Look at the beginning of chapter 4 there. Walk in a, in a worthy that's, ma- in a, 
worthy manner, right? So we're walking in alignment with the gospel. That's the picture here unfolding in chapter 4. He's going to bring up spiritual gifts, right? That, that we are using our spiritual gifts to build the local body that we are serving, giving life away in the context of the local body. Okay, you keep going down in verse 17. Um, if, if you've got an ESV, it probably over the top of that's going to say new life or new living. This is the new life that Christ brings about. It affects our lips, verse 25. Anger, verse 26. Okay, it affects forgiveness, bitterness at the end of the chapter. Then chapter 5, we become imitators of God, right? Chapter 5, purity, not even a hint of sexual immorality, verse 3, that we walk in the light, like we are salt and light. 15 and 16 in chapter 5, time management, that we are using our time wisely for the cause of God. And then chapter, or chapter 5, verse 22, kind of through the rest of the chapter, how the gospel affects our relationships. Every married couple, look up here at me. When we get to chapter 5, Paul is going to press hard into our marriages. He unpacks a beautiful picture of a biblical marriage, the roles within it. And in our culture, those roles have been scorned. In the Bible, they are beautiful. And we get to unpack and press on what it means to be a godly dad, what it means to be a pastor to your wife, what it means to be a pastor to your family. For wives, what it means to complement that and step in line with that. Chapter 6, we get to see authority, how that plays out. If you're a teenager in here, you're going to see the first thing in chapter 6 is obey your mom and dad. Honor them, right? Yeah, all the parents said. Amen. There we go, right. And it's not just that. How about this one for the parents? How do you relate to your employer? That's a little more tricky there, huh? That one's not too, too fun to talk about. How do we relate to our employer? We work well there. How, if we're an employer, how do we treat our employees? That we work with grace there. And then the, the last part of chapter 6, probably one of the most famous kind of passages in the book of Ephesians. You've got this whole spiritual warfare thing coming out, right? In the first four verses, 10 through 14, you've got this word stand that appears four times. And here's what he's saying. If you want to stand, if you want to be a person at the end of your life, you get to look back and say, I have stood well for Jesus. I've been sustained. Then we have got to put the armor of the gospel on. That's how we stand. Beautiful passage. So here's what I think we could all see in here. That the book of Ephesians, it's going to apply to all of us. It's going to press on all of us. There's a lot of relevance in the book of Ephesians. We're going to get to understand and walk in the gospel. We're going to get to be a little better theologians at the end of this thing. We're going to get to see how that gospel impacts all of our life. Relationships, our life, our, our purity, our lips, our love. All of those things are impacted by the gospel. All of it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. First two verses. goes like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We'll stop there and let's talk about Paul. Let's do our homework here. So Paul is our writer. He is a guy, when we first see him in the scripture, he's a Pharisee. He is a guy stiff-arming God. Eventually, one of those that would cry, crucify. Let's, let's get him out of the picture. So he is a hater of God. That's where we pick him up in, in Acts chapter 7 and 8. And go ahead and flip to, chapter, to Acts chapter 9 real, real quick. Acts chapter 9. So you've got Paul. We pick him up. And, and here's what we see about Paul. He is a persecutor of the church. He is a hater of God. And then in Acts chapter 9, and look at the first little part there in Acts chapter 9. You see that verse? 
Acts chapter 9, verse 1. He's breathing out murderous threats. Here's what we're about to see. That Paul was changed by the gospel. Paul had a massive defining moment. He is on his way to Damascus to persecute the church when all of a sudden he meets Jesus. And in that moment, everything changed for him. Everything is different. He meets Jesus and he experienced a gospel change. The first part of Acts chapter 9, he is breathing out murderous threats. You skip down to verse 20 and what do you see? He is preaching in the synagogue. He is proclaiming Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful picture of how the gospel changes us? And listen, Paul was one of those guys that when you're looking on a human level, you would say, this guy's way outside the bounds. And I want to encourage you, if you're in here and you've got family or friends, people that you would say they are so far from the gospel, I just don't have much hope for them. That God is a God who breaks through hearts just like Paul. So regardless of how hard they are to the gospel, that all it takes is a meeting with Jesus for all that to be different. And you start to look forward in, in the life of Paul and you see a radical change play itself out. In Philippians chapter 3, he has gone through all these worldly accomplishments, all these things that we would lift up and say, good job. I mean, that's a successful guy. And, and Paul's going to look at all that and say in, in verse 7, he's going to say, listen, All that is lost compared to the surpassing riches of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, all of these earthly things, and I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That's our author. That's Paul. A radical change by the gospel. Okay, but it's not just a change by the gospel. He's also been commissioned with the gospel. So you've got a guy that has been radically changed and now radically commissioned. He is about getting the gospel out. That is his goal. In Ephesians 3, that's what he's telling us. That my ministry is getting the gospel to the Gentiles. Now look in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Ananias, at the same time all this is going, God appears to Ananias and says, listen, you need to go tell Paul what his ministry is going to be. And Ananias, like your eye, is like, are you sure about that? I mean, we've got the right guy here, right? Okay, so, so he goes to him. And this is what God says to Ananias to encourage him on. But the Lord said to him, go. For he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Dealt kind of a rough hand there, huh? If you look at the life of Paul, he had a life of much suffering. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, that, that guy had a hard road. And you know what's beautiful about it? He was willing to put in an open hand a life without cancer, a life without suffering, a life with, without persecution. He was willing to put in a hand a life with family, a life with a lot of good things. And he closed his other hand around the gospel, around Jesus. I'm going to be a person who takes the gospel with me to the Gentiles. And he did that. And I just wonder if we feel that weight like Paul. I mean, God could say the same thing to us, that we are a chosen instrument of his to take the gospel to our neighborhood, to our workplace, to our family. And do we feel the weight of that? I pray that we do. I pray that God would make us great missionaries like Paul. His ambition, it said, was in Romans 15, was to preach the gospel where the name of Christ had not been named. And he spent his life for that. This was a guy that lived on the edge and eventually died on the edge, right? Taking the gospel to the world. Okay, so this is our author. Let's look back in Ephesians chapter 1. 
flip back over. You keep a thumb in, in Acts, because we're going to be back there in just a second. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So he is saying that, that this is by the will of God. So I'm an apostle of Christ. I'm sent by Christ. And, and I'm also, this is by the will of God. This is not a human invention. This is a Jesus-ordained job. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then he says this, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And listen, if you're in Christ in here, you're a saint. That isn't for the spiritual elite, kind of for the Navy SEALs of this. No, it's for you. If you're in Christ, God would look at you and say, you are a saint. You are perfect in Christ. Isn't that beautiful that we're saints in Jesus? Okay, then he says in Ephesus. So uh, here's what I want to do for the rest of the morning, and then we'll, we'll close it down. I want to walk through the biblical background of the book of Exodus. And here's what it's going to allow us to do at the end. It's going to lead us to an interesting question as we see what has happened to this city. So uh, Ephesus, back to, to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. In Acts 18, Paul is on his second missionary journey. He makes a short stop in Ephesus. He's there for just a, a short while. And this is what it says in Acts 18, 19. That he went into the synagogue, his kind of normal custom. And, and he was reasoning with the Jews in the city of Ephesus. Okay, now here's what we know about Ephesus. Number one, it's a large city. It's roughly 250 to 300,000 people. I mean, can you imagine that without like modern day plumbing? What happens in a city, a city like that? I mean, that's a wild thing. So you've got 250,000 to maybe 300,000 people in this city. They have a huge like, theater kind of a complex. It would be um, the rough equivalent of a 50,000 seat type stadium. So you've got kind of the precursor to Jerry World in Ephesus, right? And, and so you've got all this playing out. Um, so you've got kind of this city that's, that's um, known for commerce. It's kind of the gateway into Asia. It's one of the most important cities in the area. It's the capital of the Roman province of Asia. You've got a nice harbor, commerce, all that. Now here's the spirituality in the city. They worshipped a god slash goddess named Diana. Okay, so, so they were very spiritual people. It's not that they weren't spiritual. It's just that they're worshiping the wrong God. They're much like us. There's not a whole lot of atheists in America, but we've got a lot of idolaters, right? Just worshiping a wrong thing. And, and so you've got this spiritual climate that is set in the city where they were known for this idol in their city, this Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the world, this complex they built around it. So your banking is linked to this idol. Your um, commerce is, is linked to this idol. They had a lot of land acquisitions linked to this idol. The spiritual climate of this city is spiritual, and it's all in worship of this goddess Diana. So that's our climate. That's our city, Ephesus. Okay, so this is Paul's first visit, Acts 18. He goes short while reasons in the synagogue. His next visit, go ahead and, and flip over to, to Acts 19. This is visit number two. Just a few years later, he's on his third missionary journey. He camps in Ephesus for three years, twice as long as any other stay in any other city. This is a strategic city to Paul. So he spends three years there. And this is how we pick it up in Acts 19, verse 8. It starts out slow, slow work. And here we go in Acts chapter 19, verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. This is not easy plowing. This is tough stuff here. 
So he's got a lot of opposition there, and this is what he does. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannius. And that would be like renting a conference center. Like we've gone out of the big, big stadium, out of the synagogue, and we're now kind of in a conference city or a conference center where we would invite the city out to hear teaching. Okay, so pick it up in verse 10 there. This continued for two years. He's renting out the conference center and he's preaching to them for two years. And then listen to the conclusion of that. So that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So two years, he's giving it to them daily. I mean, he's got the conference center. He is going after it. And conclusion is that area was hearing the gospel proclaimed. And then all of a sudden, look down at verse 11. Revival is about to break out in Ephesus. The slow plowing is about to turn into a race. So in Acts uh, chapter 19, verse 11, here's where you pick it up. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had, been, that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. I mean, okay, so I've had a lot of runny noses, but I've never grabbed a handkerchief, blown my nose and bam, you're healed. And it's never happened, right? I mean, you've got some wild things going on in Ephesus. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exhortionists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had spirits saying, and listen to how they would, would say this. I adjure you by the name or by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Here's what they just did. They wanted the power of Jesus without the person of Jesus. A plague for us too. Goes on, verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? Can I just say a prayer that I think we should pray over our Stonegate Church? Is that we would be a group of people that the demons and Satan and all of his little host would know our name. That we would be causing that sort of trouble. That we would be, along with Paul, exercising great faith for the cause of God that would cause Satan to know us. Right? Okay, keep reading here. Verse 16. And this is like one of those moments that I would choose to be there in the New Testament. This is one of those few right here. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on these seven sons of Sceva, right? He leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That's just awkward. All right. I mean, that's an awkward moment. Okay. So, so you've got, but you can see that there is a spiritual climate here. And this is why in the book of Ephesians, five times it's going to say in the heavenly places, you've got this spiritual dynamic. And just as an aside here, we live in a culture that thinks all physical, all physical. We have ignored and stiff armed the spiritual, but there is a spiritual reality to everything we see going on. Let's keep going. Verse 17. And we're going to get to see four marks of what revival looks like when it breaks out in a place. Look at 17. Now, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And look at this word. And fear fell upon them all. Here's what happens when revival breaks out in a place. Reverence for God is had. There is an awe of God that is stirred. When revival breaks out, when the Holy Spirit starts to move, people look at God in a whole different way. There is an awe of God, a reverence of God. The majesty of God is seen. We in our culture have a God that is very near. And I think a lot of us have lost the fact that God is also very far. That he is also very different, right? And so he is a God to be looked upon with great reverence, great awe. 
So you've got this playing out that fear fell upon them all. And then look at this next phrase. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Here's the next thing that happens when revival breaks out. You've got reverence here for God, and then you've got this great recognition of Jesus. Jesus is lifted up. Whenever you see revival, you've got Jesus at the center of it. Jesus is proclaimed. Jesus is preached about. Jesus is thought about. Jesus is at the center of it. So the name of Jesus is lifted up. Keep reading here. Verse 18. Also, many of these who were now believers came, and look at what they were doing confessing you know a part of revival is when sin becomes apparent when we stop scraping sin under the rug and it rises to the surface and we confess it when the holy spirit illuminates our heart and we see our sinfulness they were confessing okay and then look at this next phrase and divulging their practices so it's not only confession but there's this commitment on the other side of that There is this resolve. Repentance is part confession, part commitment. Part confession, here is sin, part commitment. Here is a resolve to live different by the power of the gospel. And look at what they did here, verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic art brought their books together and burned them inside of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver, equivalent roughly $6 million dollars. It would be the equivalent of all the guys in Dallas going and grabbing their playboys, throwing them out in the streets and burning them. That's the equivalent. Six million dollars worth of them. A big stack of them. That's what's happened. That there is a confession that these things are wrong and a commitment that we're going to live out the gospel. We're going to let this have implications for our life. And then look at verse 20. So the word of God continue to increase and prevail mightily. Oh, that that would happen here. That that would be here, that the word of God would prevail mightily here. Okay, so you keep reading in Acts 19. Here's what you see. A riot happens. Keep reading down. Here, the revival hits the pocketbooks of the people, right? So it hits the pocketbooks of all these people who have got things tied to this, this princess worship, this goddess worship, this Diana worship. So you've got land holdings, you've got banks, you've got businessmen that all are tied into this thing. There's a whole industry built around people coming to worship Diana. All of a sudden, this riot comes out that says, we don't need to worship Diana. We've got Jesus. And all heck breaks loose. Now they want to kill the people following Jesus. Jesus is not looked upon with favor. Now there is rage against people of the way is what it's going to call them. Okay, so you've got a riot that breaks out. Okay, now flip from Acts over to the book of Ephesians. Roughly five years later, Paul writes to these people in Ephesus. And imagine this. You are a minority with a massive majority who don't like you. And he writes to them to encourage them. Stand firm. Stand firm. Okay, so so he writes the book of Ephesians. Okay, keep uh, flipping over to the book of Timothy. First and second Timothy. A couple of years later, Timothy, Paul's disciple, is pastoring in Ephesus. So now Paul writes to Timothy, here's how you set up the church. Here's how you lead the church. Protect the church. Here's your direction for setting up the church in Ephesus. Then keep flipping over to first, second, third John. Keep flipping to the right. Flip a few more pages. A few years later, John is writing to the church in Ephesus and those surrounding it. Walk as children of the light. And you be faithful to the Lord. He's encouraging this church in Ephesus. And then keep going over to Revelation chapter 2. 
40 years after the book of Ephesians, after, after this, you know, Acts chapter 19 saga, 40 years later, roughly 100 AD, John's on the island of Patmos. He gets a vision from God and he writes to the churches in Asia. One of those in, in Revelation 2 is to the church in Ephesus. Here's where you pick it up in Revelation 2, 1 through 5. And there's going to be a great warning here for us and some great directions here for us. Look at what it says in Revelation 2, 1 through 5, the city of Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Lampstands are the seven churches in Asia. Lampstand equals church. Verse 2, here's what he's going to say about the church in Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Good quality, right? We're all amening so far. Good thing they're doing here. Keep going. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Good quality. They're testing their teaching, making sure it's biblical. Good quality. Verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. Good quality. And have not grown weary. Good quality. Verse 4. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first you're doing a okay look at me here you're doing a million good things but you have lost the primary thing you're doing a thousand great things but you have lost the one central thing in your church look what he goes on to say here's the warning for us verse five remember Therefore, from where you have fallen, remember, remember what it was like in Ephesus when all came upon us at the majesty and the greatness and the grandeur of God. When our thought that followed God was huge, was massive, was worth laying down our lives for. Remember that. Remember how we preached Jesus and how we worshiped Jesus. The recognition that revolved around his name. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And then look at this word repent confess your sin make a covenant a resolve the power of the gospel to live out the gospel repent and do the works you did at first and then look at this last parting shot warning here if not i will come to you and remove your lampstand your church from its place unless you repent if you go to turkey today where Ephesus was, guess what? No church in Turkey. They would not repent, and they caused a good God to work against their church and eventually shut the door of their church. And we would be foolish in this room to think that if we hold other things primary, other things central, that God will not work against our church and shut our doors too. So may we be a church who keeps Jesus central, who remembers, who repents, and who repeats this revival that happened in Ephesus so that God will not work against us. So he will work with us to display his word to the world. We'll end it with this quote from a pastor of a couple centuries ago. If God spared not a city so once blessed, take heed lest he spare not thee. The church of God must stand and will stand. The universal church is going to stand 
till time shall be no more. But the lampstand, a.k.a. your church, this church, is a movable part of the furniture in the house of God. And unless we keep Jesus central, it will no longer be a furniture piece in the household of God. Amen? Let's pray. Revelation 2, verse 3, verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Here's the warning. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your church. So, so let me just ask you the question as we finish this morning. Are you living in the gospel? Do you need to remember and repent? Daddies, do you need to remember and repent for the sake of your family, to display the worth of Christ in your family? Do you need to remember and repent? Is the love that you first had, is that a distant memory or a present reality? Remember and repent. Mama's in this room. Is it a distant memory, present day reality? Do you need to remember and repent to to do, to repeat these works that you did at first? I just want to press on that for you. Is that, is that an area? Have you lost the zeal for God? Have you replaced it with a thousand good things? The curse of the city of Ephesus is ours today. We have a lot of great things, a lot of good things, but here's the problem. They're not God. Your family is not God. Your kids are not God. Your wife, husband is not God. They're a great gift from God, but they are not God. They make horrible gods. And if you've placed those before God, if there is something, an idol in your heart that you have placed in front of God, made primary, made central in your life, may this be a morning that we fall on our knees and we repent, that we remember who Christ is, what Christ has done. So is it a present reality or a distant memory? So God, I pray for our church that it would always be a present reality. God, that you would fill this place with daddies, with mamas, with families, with teenagers who love you, white-hot zeal for a great and worthy God. So God, will you do that? God, I plead with you to move in this place, to keep us there, to stay there. God, I pray that, that our saga would not be the saga of Ephesus, that you would not have to work against your church. God, you would be able to to freely and graciously work for your church as we lift you up, as we keep you as our preference, you as our primary point. So God, would you do that? God, I pray that you might use the book of Ephesians. You might mark our life with it so we can invest our life for your cause in the world.